From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. After Monday's bomb attack in a Manchester arena stole the lives of 22 people, and after the initial wave of anguish, British officials pivoted to the investigation and a new mood, fury. Investigators are furious over American leaks of key intelligence. British authorities are now furious that their photos shared with American counterterrorism officials have leaked out. Well, they're furious, there's no question about it. Their fury was aimed on Tuesday at America's leaky intelligence officials and American news media, especially NBC and CBS for revealing the bomber's name, and then on Wednesday at the New York Times for printing photos of the bomb site, bomb fragments, its switch, and descriptions by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter C.J. Chivers of the bomb itself, apparently crafted with expertise far beyond that of the bomber. CBS correspondent Mark Phillips said that for the British authorities, that was the epitome of too much information. That information can be used to pinpoint where this thing might have come from, and that would indicate to the people who built the bomb that the police were on to them. Now, the UK officials didn't evince American-style fury. No one was body-slammed. It was the British kind, involving tight lips and inward seething. Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. To have information put in the public domain before it was put there by people here is just wrong. The British police and security services need to be in the lead when this is a live investigation. Otherwise, said British Home Secretary Amber Rudd, they could lose the element of surprise. So it is irritating if it gets released from other sources, and I have been very clear with our friends that that should not happen again. British Prime Minister Theresa May said that once she arrived at this week's NATO summit... I will make clear to President Trump that intelligence that is shared between our law enforcement agencies must remain secure. New York Times executive editor Dean Baquet said that law enforcement never asked the paper to remove the information, which he said was neither personal nor insensitive, as some charged. And people need to be informed. Acts of terrorism, wrote the Times, have tremendous impact on how we live, on how we are governed, and how we interact as a people, communities, and nations. No argument there, but it does raise questions. Not about if to report the information, but when. When best serves the public interest. Sometimes it's better to wait. True, a less scrupulous outfit could get there first. Social media first revealed the bomber's name. But surely the venerable times is not ruled entirely by the almighty scoop. Over the years, it has delayed publishing many stories to protect ongoing military or intelligence operations after calculating the risks versus the benefits of rushing to press. I don't know what calculus was applied to this case. I assume there was one. But funny things happen in the fog of war. Not the war on terrorism, the one in Washington. Unnamed government leakers have done patriotic service by exposing this government's cover-ups and cons. Their motives don't matter if their info is good. The most famous Washington leaker in history is Mark Felt, a disgruntled G-man Nixon passed over for promotion. But Deep Throat helped usher in a concern for government accountability that has now all but disappeared. These times call for more Deep Throats. There are risks. 
Obviously, reporters can be misled, this is understood, and good ones take precautions. But there's another stranger hazard in this moist climate, that the reflex to report leaks crushes reflection. Not all leaks are created equal. Why did the public need to know Wednesday what the switch looked like and how tightly the bomb maker packed the shrapnel? What's wrong with Friday? Here's the real problem as I see it. Our president despises these leakers even as he serves up national security secrets to bad actors from abroad like canapes. What if Trump uses this controversy to pressurize the leaking class, to cast even more shade on the disclosures that the public truly needs? Needs far more, I would argue, than instant details from the mayhem wreaked by yet another twisted soul craving posthumous recognition. No one understands better than journalists the need to protect their sources. Reporters go to jail to shield them. I say extend that tender care to the whole leaker environment. Don't give the bullies justification to hound them. At least don't do it for a 24-hour jump on a middling scoop on a massacre that in the final analysis does not directly affect us. Oh, the story makes us look, but it teaches us nothing we don't already know. Throughout the history of terrorism, the press has been in a bind. To fully inform the public about terrorist attacks and how they happen without supplying the very notoriety the killers crave. Writing in Pointer this week, Indira Lakshmanan argues that whatever the responsible balance is, it's not the one that was struck in the coverage of the bombing at the Manchester Arena. Indira, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. What did you see that you objected to? What I object to is the endless repeated hours upon hours of the same footage being shown of handheld witness cell phone video and analysts talking over it and anchors describing it again and again. What we've consistently heard from witnesses on the ground, at least one loud noise, a, a bang, a blast of some kind, and then that has triggered the fear and the frenzy that followed. One thing we can say, this statement did say in Arabic that this was one of ISIS's soldiers that had attacked what they what they described as uh, crusaders. Was this attack acting by himself or was he part of a larger network? And frankly, at the moment, the police do not know, which is why they have raised the terror level to critical. We saw it in the Manchester bombing. We saw it in the Boston bombing in Orlando, San Bernardino. Okay, Pierre, I want to go again to the video of the explosion. We're going to slow it down. Look again at this video. The worst mass shooting in American history, the worst terror attack here in the United States since 9-11. Lauren Lister has been on the scene all morning long in Orlando, Florida. A massive manhunt for the armed gunman in California came to a head. But this was the scene moments earlier, captured on camera by neighbors. Oh, And what lodged in my mind was this image of this poor young girl jumping off of a staircase in her terror to get away from this terrible bombing. 
study after study has shown that by repeating these kinds of images, we're not only traumatizing the victims who've lived through this attack and the relatives of those who'd perished, but we're traumatizing people watching from across the world. Other people become anesthetized and numb. They see repeated images of terrorism and it just sort of washes over them. It doesn't mean anything to them anymore. But both of these extremes do happen to people and it's been documented. I might add a third that it's carrying the water for terrorist organizations in their recruitment of people to perpetrate precisely this kind of act, right? Absolutely, Bob. We know that Daesh or ISIS, as we call it in the U.S., they know that they're going to get notoriety even posthumously. And they know that youth who are suffering from alienation or anime, who are vulnerable to being recruited by ISIS, react positively to this. And it's not something that's unique to terrorism. We know from the diaries and the social media accounts of people who've participated in school shootings that they too sought to be on television and imagined how they would always be remembered for what they did. One of your gripes is that the amount of space and time devoted to terror attacks makes the risk to the general public seem far greater than it is, not to mention usurping coverage of other things that actually do have a much greater effect on us all. What's the data behind that allegation? First of all, if the issue is that we're concerned about death toll, the if it bleeds, it leads, we should be covering when the most bodies pile up, then all Americans would know a heck of a lot more about the recent mudslides in Colombia that killed more than 200 people or the 1,683 Americans who die on average every day from heart disease. There was an incredibly interesting study done by Namil Dalal in Priceonomics in 2015 that showed that terrorism deaths are the single most heavily covered type of death per capita in the first pages of the New York Times compared to every other way that a human can die. A scholar at the University of Western Australia, a behavioral economist, looked at 60,000 terrorist attacks covered in the New York Times over a period between 1970 and 2012 and found that with each additional story from the New York Times about a terrorist attack, the chances of having an additional follow-up attack went up by between 11% and 15%, and the chance of additional casualties went up by one to two deaths within the week afterwards. Now, I'm not pointing the finger at the New York Times, certainly not. I'm just saying that even in such a good publication that's so influential, it is out of proportion, partly because it's human nature. Look, you're not the first to make these observations because it's so clear that wall-to-wall coverage, especially on cable TV, goes far beyond the basics of delivering the news and mutates into something else altogether, and I'm not sure quite what. You have suggestions for what the press can do instead, and I wonder if you'd list a few of them. Rather than referring to terrorists as claiming responsibility or claiming credit, I would argue we should be saying they're admitting guilt because it's murder. They're not responsible for anything. They don't deserve credit for anything. So I would say deprive the terrorists of what they want, which is the spotlight and the glory and the ability to recruit. You can also show the effects of terrorism in a deeply emotional way that will really touch the hearts of your audience in ways that don't emphasize the gore and the blood. And one example that I give is that you can 
include photographs that show the victim's personal effects that were left behind, shoes, stuffed animals, or flowers placed to commemorate the victims rather than body parts. To give you one example of positive coverage, Sky News, a UK television outlet, specifically took the video from the Manchester police who in the hours after the attack announced that they would have a zero tolerance policy for hate crimes. More than ever, it is vital that our diverse communities that make Greater Manchester such a strong place actually stand together and support each other. Sky News took a video of this and tweeted it out, shared it on all their social channels. So that was a way for them to put out the message that, hey, you know, let's not let this be an excuse for retaliatory hate crimes against Muslims in the community, for example. Okay, so here's how life is on the ground. A terrorist episode happens. Immediately thereafter comes chaos. Sometimes television crews don't get to the scene for quite a while. All we have to rely on is cell phone footage and images taken by victims and bystanders. And it very quickly becomes iconic because it's all we have to look at for a while after the incident. And therefore, there is this impulse, I think, for the cable news and for broadcast TV to go back to those images in subsequent reports because they're shortcuts. They contextualize whatever the new developments are that they're discussing next. Now, yes, they may be traumatic, and yes, they may be anesthetizing, but they're also really handy for guiding the audience into the story. Is it always wrong? I'm talking about proper balance here. It's not always or never. Of course, certain footage becomes iconic. Of course, anybody who's old enough to have lived through 9-11 remembers iconic footage of the towers burning and of people jumping out of those towers to their death. But not everything is an icon. A photo of a young girl in Vietnam fleeing napalm, that's an iconic image. But the same image of a girl jumping off a staircase in an endless loop in Manchester, that's not an iconic image. So not everything is of the same value just because it's taken in a moment of news. And that's why not every image wins a Pulitzer Prize or an Emmy. Indira, thank you very much. A pleasure to talk to you, Bob. Indira Lakshmanan is, among other things, a columnist for the Boston Globe and a guest host for WAMU and NPR's 1A. Coming up, how to rid the web of ISIS recruitment videos. As the saying goes, there's an app for that. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Newspaper editors and TV producers may have cause to reflect on how to perform in the face of modern-day terrorism, but their concerns are dwarfed by those of tech giants like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, who have seen their services continually co-opted by terrorism recruiters and extremists of every stripe. But as they remind us, after each new attack, they are doing their best. It's just that with so many users, so many videos, there's only so much that can be done. To which computer science professor Hani Farid says... Not so much. 
Farid is a professor at Dartmouth College, senior advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project, and co-creator of a new technology that he says could significantly rein in extremist content online, if the tech companies were really interested in doing so. Hani, welcome to OTM. Very good to be here. Thank you. All right. Deja vu. Because I feel like I've heard those objections before from the tech giants on the matter of child pornography. Too many obstacles to finding the porn needles in the internet haystack. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So back in 2003, there was growing pressure from the White House on tech giants to do something about the growing and troubling distribution of child pornography. And between 2003 and 2008, they did a lot of hand-wringing talking about how serious they take this, about how horrific the crime was. But they essentially threw up their hands for five years and said, look, the Internet's really big and there's nothing we can do about it. And in 2008, I started collaborating with Microsoft and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And in about a year, we had developed a technology that is now in worldwide deployment called PhotoDNA. And it allows tech companies like Google, like Facebook, like Twitter, to find and remove child pornography. And in fact, it was a hard problem, but it wasn't nearly as hard as the tech companies were saying. And the problem was they weren't working on it. You came up with the solution that you called photo DNA, trying to establish, I guess, inherent patterns in child pornography and, and then looking for them elsewhere? Yeah, so just like the human DNA is distinct and stable over your lifetime, digital content has a similar type of digital signature which we've been able to extract. And so what we do is we reach in into an image and we extract a distinct digital signature that is stable as that image makes its way around the internet. And then what we do is we go over to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and we look at tens of millions of known child pornography and we say, extract the signature from all of the content that you want to remove. And then we sit at the pipe of a Facebook, a Twitter, a Google, a Microsoft, a Dropbox, whatever it is, and we scan every single image that comes in and compare it against the database. If it's a match, it's child pornography and it goes away. When you started to tackle the terrorism recruitment problem and other violent content, you began with something very much like photo DNA. How does it work? So the new technology that we developed with the Counter-Extremism Project is called eGlyph. The core concept, extract a unique digital signature and compare that signature on upload is the same as it is with photo DNA, but it's also able to analyze audio and video recordings, which photo DNA cannot do. We can now do it with all different forms of media. Increasingly, we are seeing live video on mm. these platforms. Is there anything that can be done to intervene in live violence uh, before it makes its way all across the net? That kind of complex and nuanced understanding of content is incredibly difficult for, for computers, and we are not there yet. But I believe that we could develop an early warning system. So it would not be perfect, but you can imagine a system that is analyzing live video as it comes in and will flag content that may be inappropriate for a human to look at and make a decision on. I genuinely believe that we could do something, but it's going to require a real effort on everybody's part, and nobody seems to be doing that right now at any real level. Look, I'm no computer scientist, but I, I do know something about the network effect. When a live act of violence begins on the Internet, there is an immediate reaction throughout Twitter and throughout Facebook and everywhere else 
there must be some way to convert those reactions to an instant flagging mechanism that can jump in and pull the thing down, no? No, you're absolutely right. But here's another troubling thing about companies like Facebook is that they make it exceedingly easy for you to share and like something, and they make it much less easy for you to report inappropriate content. There is no button right next to the like button that says report. And that's intentional, right? They don't want those reports. They want you to share. They want you to like. That's how the systems work. On the subject of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, he has just recently announced that they're going to hire 3,000 live human beings to help discriminate between news and fake news. So I'm going to assume that when you showed up with eGlyph, he said, this is just what we're looking for. Count us in. <laughs> when do we start? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. So we said, here's a technology we would like to give for you for free. We know what we're doing. We have tested it, and we want to create an industry standard, and we were rebuffed. I say we were rebuffed. I have to say it's really frustrating because every time we see horrific things on Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitter, we get the standard press release from the company saying we take online safety very seriously. There is no room on our networks for this type of material. And yet the companies continue to drag their feet. They continue to ignore technology that could be used and doesn't affect their business model in any significant way. In their own self-interest, they should be doing this, and I'm baffled by why they do not. Aha. Uh -huh. So let's assume that there's nobody at Facebook who is a champion of global terrorism or of child mm -hmm. pornography. And let's further assume that taking these algorithmic measures to filter out this stuff mm -hmm. is not going to cut significantly into their revenues. Why do you suppose they haven't jumped right in? No matter how many times I have asked, no matter how many times the ministers at the EU have asked, no, no matter how many times the folks at the United Nations and the White House have asked, I have never gotten a very good answer. Here's what I think I can tell you, though, is when we were deploying photo DNA, here was what we really heard, was that once you get into the business of systematic content removal, you are going to be the end of the internet as we know it. Somehow, if you take down child pornography, if you take down extremist content, they're going to come for the kittens. That's what's next. That every incremental step along the way of creating controls erodes the essence of the Internet. But they already have terms of service that prohibit this stuff. Right. So there's the problem with that argument. First of all, let me be very clear. I believe in an open and free Internet. I believe in vigorous debate. But there are limits. They're not even my limits. They're the company's limits. So if the company fundamentally believes that there should be no limits on speech, whether it's legal or not, then they should eliminate their terms of service that say so. But they can't have it both ways. So Google and Facebook and Twitter want to have terms of service that give them public relations cover and legal cover. They don't want to actually enforce them. So what we are saying is you have said as a private company there are limits to speech on our networks. We are simply giving you a mechanism to enforce that. So you're essentially calling their bluff. If the bluff is the terms of service, 
You're saying, put your algorithm where your mouth is. Yes. And so here we are now in 2017, and we hear the same tired excuses. The internet is really big, and it's really complicated, and yet they seem to have no trouble harnessing the power of that data to advertise to you, to (laughs) sell your personal data. There is no financial incentive for them to do this. But I think that's going to start to change. We are starting to see lawsuits starting to sue the social media companies for material support of terrorism. The Brits just this week, again, are getting fed up with the social media companies telling them how seriously they take safety and security. And yet we know the Internet is being used to radicalize and glorify this kind of violence. We're going to come to a head, and it is coming very soon. And if the companies don't get their act together and voluntarily start to really crack down on this— It is going to start getting legislated, and that is going to be ugly because I'm not sure that's the right solution. Hani, thank you. It's very good to talk to you, Bob. Hani Farid is a professor of computer science at Dartmouth College, senior advisor for the Counter Extremism Project, and creator of eGlyph. Coming up, four Confederate monuments come down, but monumental questions remain. This is On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. We think a lot these days about dueling realities, red states versus blue, a nation cleaved in half. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, ever since the Civil War ended, Much of the South continues to see that conflict as a noble struggle of honor and self-determination led by heroic figures. Today, that perspective takes the form of what some historians call the cult of the lost cause, an ongoing narrative battle that mythologizes the Civil War by obscuring our nation's shameful past. This cult had one goal and one goal only, through monuments and through other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. That's New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu speaking last week to mark the removal of four of the city's monuments. After fierce opposition and a multi-year legal battle, New Orleans no longer hosts statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Generals P.G.T. Beauregard and Robert E. Lee, and an obelisk exalting the battle of Liberty Place, a historic racist attack. Landrieu described the significance of these monuments in the starkest terms. These statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. And after the Civil War, these monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. They were erected purposefully to send a strong message to all who walked in the shadows about who was still in charge in this city. And they didn't yield their ground without a fight. Protests erupted in New Orleans when the city decided to remove the monuments. Wearing masks to protect their identities, crews worked through the night to avoid large-scale protests. Security measures, including bulletproof vests, had to be taken to protect the workers who have received death threats. Malcolm Suber is a historian and co-founder of Take em Down NOLA, a group that aims to sweep New Orleans Confederate memorials into the dustbin of history. He says it's part of a decades-long struggle by the black community to tell a truer story of the city. 
Suber traces the movement to 1954, when black parents, students, and teachers protested the celebration of John McDonough Day. McDonough is thought to have been the largest slaveholder in antebellum New Orleans and endowed many of the city's public schools, schools that, of course, were segregated. The little black kids would have to bake in the sun while the white kids were laying flowers on the bust of John McDonough. The black community called a boycott, and it was 100% effective. This was the first public protestation of these white supremacy monuments, and it just snowballed from there. When Suber moved to New Orleans in 1978, there were dozens of public schools named for slaveholders. Eventually, his group persuaded the school board to allow parents to vote on new names, and his group had another big victory in the 1980s. We got permission from the highway department to remove the white supremacy monument, and that monument, of course, was one that commemorated the Battle of Liberty Place, so-called. Now, that was a brief victory. You got that monument taken down, but then a few years later, the city put it right back up, and then it was finally dismantled again in the latest round of removals. But this wasn't some anodyne monument to the heroism of Confederate troops or leaders. The Battle of Liberty Place was another beast altogether. So basically, a group called the White League, which was made up of Confederate veterans and the sons and daughters of the rich white slave-owning class in New Orleans, proclaimed themselves openly as a group that was bent upon restoring white supremacy in Louisiana. In September of 1874, they launched a coup d'etat against the government of the state of Louisiana and went into battle against the Metropolitan Police Force, which was an integrated police force, had black and white police officers. Fourteen years later, in 1871, they decided to dedicate a monument to that event. And in 1905, they added a plaque to that monument. People in the black community have always called that the White Supremacy Monument, and the white people, of course, call it the Battle of Liberty Place Monument. Over 160-some years, people have come to believe that in building these monuments, they are commemorating something that is not, as you characterize it, you know, white supremacy, but something larger and greater, such as an entire way of life. How have they come to be so deluded about the nature of the Civil War and of slavery? Well, we, of course, know that the Civil War was fought on behalf of the plantation owners, but it was fought by ordinary white peasants, basically. And so in order to buffer and to explain to people why so much blood was shed in the South during the Civil War, they had to make a myth that what they were fighting for was not, in fact, the enslavement of African people, but it was something had to do with home and self-determination for the South. That myth grew and grew and grew, and it grew in the context that there was no real suppression of the planter class after their rebellion and treason against the United States government. Anywhere else in the world, if you had raged war against the central government, not only would you have been stripped, but many of you would have been executed. The rest of you would have been put in jail and all of your symbols would have been suppressed. But we had the very opposite of that occurring in the South. 
because, as I always say, we won the battle, but we lost the war. And the war grew up among Southern historians to pretend that the planter class in the South, they were fighting to protect the honor of the South rather than they, they were fighting to protect their ownership of chattel slaves. Mayor Landrieu gave a speech on the occasion of having these things torn down that was most eloquent. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the scales fell from anybody's eyes if they said, oh, for goodness sakes, of course, now I understand why these are toxic, not only to black Louisianans, but everybody. Well, there has not been one member of the white ruling class that has come out in support of taking down these monuments. They are so caught up in the myth of these statues and so protective because it was their family members who paid to put these things up in the first place. And so they see this as part of their heritage, but they are so blinded by white supremacy, their attitude is, we run this city, this is our city, and we do what we want to do, and you just got to grin and bear it. Now, when the statuary disappeared, it's not as though you and the rest of Take Them Down NOLA put the mayor on your shoulders and walk through the city shouting for he's a jolly good fellow, hip, hip, hooray. You're not really satisfied with this gesture. How can you just take down four when we got hundreds of street names, school names, and statuary dedicated to white supremacy and the Confederacy? We're not interested in tokens, and we won't be satisfied until all of those are done away with. This is what I raised with Mitch two years ago. I said, listen, if we take down one statue, the rich whites who run the city are going to be pissed. If you take down two, they're going to be pissed. So since they're going to be pissed no matter what you do, go ahead and do the complete job. Let's get this (laughs) over and get this behind us. I understand you run tours in New Orleans called Hidden History. Yes. What do you show people about the black experience? Well, we talk about the entire development of the slave trade here. We talk about the contribution of the African people in the building up of the city. The African people were the workforce. They were the carpenters. They were the iron workers. They were the people who did all the cooking and the cleaning. We just are an answer to the other Chamber of Commerce type tour, which talks about the glory of New Orleans as being one of the richest cities in the world during the antebellum period. Their romanticism is about the enslavement of African people And we talk about the struggle of African people against enslavement and the fight for equality. When you give this tour, is there one site, one story that you want people to have etched into their memories? Well, we go to a site on um, Royal Street, Cafe Maspero. Cafe Maspero used to be called the Slave Exchange. And they have a plaque on the outside of their building that says this was one of the sites where people were sold. When I first moved here in 1978, it was not just called Cafe Maspero. It was called Cafe Maspero Slave Exchange. A white friend of mine invited me to go to lunch there. I said, why in the hell would I want to eat in a place that sold my people that I was on the menu? 
So that is one of the sites that gives a real example of the kind of narrative that is presented by the ruling class from New Orleans, and, and we like to talk about that. An interesting thing happened after Katrina. The hotel owners decided that they were going to replace the black hotel workers with Hispanics. And basically the tourists had a fit because the tourists come to New Orleans to see black people entertaining them, serving them, waiting on them. Be subservient like in the old days. Yes. They say, we want to see some Hispanics. We can go to Houston. And in many ways, that reflects the uh, society that, that has been carved out and built here in New Orleans. Malcolm, thank you. No problem. Have a good day. Malcolm Suber is a historian and co-founder of Take Em Down NOLA, which advocates for the removal of Confederate memorials and symbols in the city of New Orleans. So as monuments to the Confederacy go down, what goes in their place? New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu again from his recent speech. Why there are no slave ship monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks, nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives of pain, of sacrifice, of shame, all of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. There is an effort already underway to mark what happened to over 4,000 lynching victims between 1877 and 1950 and the message their murders implied to Americans black and white. The Equal Justice Initiative documented those Southern lynchings in a report two years ago, and it also has set out to make that history seen. Brian Stevenson is a director of the Equal Justice Initiative and professor of law at NYU School of Law. Where I live now in Montgomery, Alabama, we have 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy. 59. You can't go anywhere in this community without encountering a street name or a building or a, a monument. And I would actually accept if people in the South said, you know what, let's not talk about anything that happened before 1965. It's just too painful. I don't think it would be smart, but I could at least accept it. But we actually love talking about mid-19th century history. We just don't want to talk about slavery. You know, the effort in New Orleans was sparked by the tragic murders of nine African-Americans in Charleston, South Carolina, by a young man who had wrapped himself in the story that there is something noble in this identity of Confederate resistance to integration. The Germans lived through a horrific era where Nazis killed millions of Jewish people. And if they never tried to address the identity created by the horrors of the Holocaust, I don't think we would feel about them the way many of us feel. But because there was a movement to create an identity that says we are struggling to recover from all of that ugliness, we trust them. You contrast that with the American South, and it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's as if we're glorifying and romanticizing the leadership of the Third Reich. I mean, in Alabama, where I live, Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. On Martin Luther King Day, it is Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day, and it has an impact. So let's talk about the design of the Memorial to Peace and Justice that yeah. you've planned. It has 800 columns, each representing a county where you've documented lynchings. You also have a separate place 
with identical columns. Each county will be able to take home as monuments, and you're waiting for them to do so. In Montgomery, there is one along the road. Do you think people will take those monuments? I do. I do. And I think the conversation that will happen in these communities about whether to take these monuments will be important. And even if the first time that conversation happens, there's no success, I think it's important to talk about history. Uh, We've started putting up markers at lynching sites across the region. And I really think it's important. Part of the reason why we're so indifferent to racial bias today, we're so non-responsive to racial inequality, is that because we've kind of created a cultural norm that just It's just not that big a deal. I mean, we tolerated thousands of people being burned alive in the courthouse square. I mean, thousands of people would come in a carnival atmosphere. And, you know, the children and grandchildren of the people who did that have not been asked to reflect on that, to talk about that, to think about that. I have to say that I looked at the video on your website of the memorial This isn't built yet. This is the artist's rendering, but it is almost excruciatingly powerful, even on a little computer screen. The columns are hanging as if from trees. And we're hoping to open next year. When I go to the Holocaust Memorial, I walk through there, and at the end of that experience, I say, never again. And I think we need to create spaces in this country where we are pushed, encouraged, to commit ourselves to saying never again when it comes to the kind of racial terror that we lived through in the American South throughout the first half of the 20th century. And if we don't create cultural spaces to help us get there, I worry that we won't get there on our own. That brings us to the Equal Justice Initiative, your organization, and its efforts to tally the number and locations of thousands of lynchings in this country. Now, I think those of us on the coasts and in the Northeast and the Northwest may take some comfort in believing that lynching was exclusively a, you know, Southern thing, but it wasn't, was it? It was not. On June 13, we'll be actually releasing data on lynchings from states all over the country, in Maryland, in Illinois, in Minnesota, in Ohio, the Midwest and West. There's no place in America where we can claim any kind of sanctuary from the implications of this legacy. You also have a plan for a museum called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. It's housed near the site of a slave auction site. The name suggests a continuum. We want to create a narrative museum. We want people to go on a journey. It will start with the act of domestic slave trade. You'll see slave pens. You'll hear the voices of formerly enslaved people presented through these holograms. It'll almost be like ghosts are speaking to you. You'll see the human bodies and structures through sculpture. And we want to talk about the way in which slavery evolved. I don't believe that slavery ended in 1865. The 13th Amendment didn't deal with this problem of white supremacy. It's what created the racial terror that led to lynching. And so you'll move from slavery in our museum to this era of lynchings. And then you'll go from that era into the segregation era. You can't really understand the civil rights movement and these Jim Crow laws without understanding the backstory of slavery and lynching. And we celebrate the civil rights movement without 
really reflecting on the fact that we didn't deal with this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy. So today, we have a very racialized criminal justice system where the Bureau of Justice predicts that one in three black male babies is expected to go to jail or prison. We see these horrific disparities. So the museum tries to draw this through line so that when you leave, hopefully, you'll be motivated to say, never again. How do I engage with confronting this legacy when it manifests itself in our criminal justice system, in employment settings, in public discourse? You have this quote about poverty. Say it so I don't mess it up. I I don't believe that the opposite of poverty is wealth. I believe the opposite of poverty is justice. That's another part of the story. The red lines, all the way through the subprime mortgages, the inability to move from one place to another. Yeah, most people don't appreciate that as a result of the terrorism that was going on in the Deep South, millions of African Americans fled. That's how these communities in Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Oakland and Los Angeles became the communities they are today. The black people in those spaces didn't go there as immigrants. They went there as refugees and exiles from terror. And that exodus carried a very heavy economic burden. And when they got to these communities and they were excluded through redlining, when they were not provided the services that we provided to other immigrant communities, it created this kind of generational poverty, this structural poverty. Now, the Equal Justice Initiative is based in Montgomery, right? That's correct. Just last week, lawmakers in Alabama approved a bill that would, and I quote, prohibit the relocation, removal, alteration, renaming, or other disturbance of any memorial building, memorial street, or monument that has stood on public property for more than 40 years without permission from a new state commission. This is widely seen as a way of protecting Confederate symbols. And the governor even added a provision that schools could change locations and renovate, but they couldn't change their names. Right. So that's where you've situated the Equal Justice Initiative. (laughs) It is. It is. This bill is absolutely tragic. It is a setback. It is the politics of resistance to the kind of progress that we need to make. We're not trying to punish Montgomery for its history. We're really trying to liberate it. I think many leaders have a hard time saying, I'm wrong. They think that makes you look weak. I actually think when you're able to say, I made a mistake, you can get stronger. And so we've made it clear, we're not interested in punishing Montgomery or the American South for this history. We really just want to create a space that's healthier. And here's where we really differ from Berlin. You have a couple of generations removed from the people who participated in the Holocaust. But here in the U.S., for instance, after the removal of the New Orleans monuments, a Mississippi lawmaker named Carl Oliver posted on Facebook that if the, quote, leadership of Louisiana wants to destroy historical monuments of our history, in all caps, they should be lynched, also in capital letters. He deleted that, but uh, is this too soon? Well, I think we're long overdue. And there are reasons why we're just getting to this conversation, because, you know, when you're we're struggling to recover from slavery and you're facing lynching, you can't actually talk about the horrors of slavery. You've got to deal with the horrors of lynching. 
when you've gotten past public spectacle lynchings, but you're still dealing with disenfranchisement, Jim Crow and segregation, you can't really talk about the problems of lynching. You're dealing with legalized racial subordination. When you get past that era and you see all of this chronic poverty and you're still dealing with mass incarceration, it's hard to get to the space where you can do the cultural work. But I think the time is now. We don't have the kind of shame that I think we need to have. And some people will hear that and think, well, I don't want to feel shame. But the truth is that you have to. You know, I represent people in criminal cases. And my clients, when they have parolable sentences, go before a parole board, if they don't say, I'm sorry, if they don't express some remorse for the crime for which they have been convicted, the parole board will not let them out. And they won't let them out because they don't trust them to recognize and appreciate the wrongfulness of their conduct. Well, it's the same for a collective community. If we don't acknowledge the horror of slavery and lynching and segregation, it's hard to trust people to be committed to racial equality and fair treatment of everyone. And that's the problem with this legislator's comment. It evokes this kind of absence of shame for what happened. It romanticizes it. He wants to replicate it. And we're not going to be a free country while we believe that we can tolerate that vision of how we relate to one another. The Southern Poverty Law Center has tallied over 700 monuments to the Confederacy on public lands. This process of taking them down is really just beginning. There's so much resistance. Sometimes it's violent. Where do you think the South goes from here? You know, what happened in New Orleans is that a group of people actually began to understand the truth behind these statues and monuments and memorials. You know, we talk a lot about truth and reconciliation. You can't have the reconciliation without the truth. Brian, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Brian Stevenson is the director of the Equal Justice Initiative and professor of law at NYU School of Law, and he's the author of Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.